good look group of kids there and thanks for all you who help uh, minister to them I think they're proud and I want to say this next week we're having a for part of service we're having a, a children's Christmas program so you don't want to miss that they're going to be practicing I think now as we're, we're here and here learning and they'll be learning as well but I encourage you to come back for the first part of the service will be dedicated to, to them ministering to us through song and and word I'm sure as well so well last week Jared began our Christmas series entitled the promise of Christmas where we're looking at some of the promises God made in the Old Testament concerning the Lord Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world. And last week he dealt with, if you all remember, Genesis 3.15, which is the very first promise of the Christ, the coming Christ. And uh, there, at the, right after sin, the blackness of sin has just ruined the world. God made a promise that he would send a deliverer who would crush the serpent's head and in so doing, the serpent would bruise him on the heel. And that was the first prophecy of the Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, the first of many, many prophecies. In fact, a man named Peter Stoner, in a studying the Bible, uh, said that there, there are 127 predictions of Christ in the Old Testament that cover 3,348 verses in the Old Testament. He focused on just eight of those promises or predictions about Christ and calculated the probability of each one coming to pass as predicted. And the following chart summarizes what he found in these eight promises. Uh, Micah 5, 2, born in Bethlehem, one in 105 chances that a man would fulfill that. You go down through there, he would clear the temple, he would ride a donkey into Jerusalem, he wound, was wounded in the house of friends, betrayed for 30 pieces of silver, betrayed price, was thrown at the, to the potter, uh, will not open a mouth before his will, will not open his mouth before his accusers, and then he will be crucified. And you see the probability of each one of those. Well, when you calculate based on these estimates, one man and in, in how many men around the world would fulfill just these eight prophecies, just these eight, all eight of them, one man around the world, and that probability yields approximately one chance in ten to the twenty-eighth power. So, what does that look like? one in this number, okay, chances that one man could fulfill those eight prophecies. And that's only the tip of the iceberg. Remember, there's 127 of them. And guess what? Jesus fulfilled every single one. And the, there's not enough room on the slide for the probability of one man fulfilling all 127 promises in the Old Testament about the Christ child who would be the Savior of the world. Amazing. Well, God's promise of Christmas is clear. It, it's not muddy. It's not, well, okay, I can kind of make it out. I can maybe see it just a little bit. I can kind of see it peeking through behind the curtain. No, it's in the front of the curtain, shouting loud and clear, God is sending a Savior. And we're going to look at one of God's other promises about the Christ this morning. Uh, please turn in your Bibles to Isaiah 9, the passage that I read from. And verses 1 through 7, we're going to concentrate on verses 6 and 7. I don't have time to do all verses 1 through 7. This is like a three-part series if I did all seven verses. Um, but we're going to concentrate on verses 6 and 7. We'll refer to the first part as well. But the title of the message this morning in this series, The Promise of Christmas, is The Indescribable Gift. Let's pray and ask the Lord to open our hearts to his word this morning. Lord, thank you so much for your word. Lord, thank you that it does speak to us and not only speak to us but it changes us 
Lord, uh, Lord Jesus said in John 17, to sanctify them in your truth. Your word is truth. Lord, we want to be changed. We want to be made more into the likeness of your Son through your word this morning. So, Lord, meet us where we are. And, Lord, I pray that when we leave here, we would not be the same, but we would look more like Jesus. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, we all know you're not supposed to tell people what you get them for Christmas, right? Now, with little younger kids, that's hard. They hard. They get you something, and they can't help but they blurt it out. And you know. I mean, they've already wrapped it, but they're going to tell you. You want to know what's in there? And you say, no, 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 no. Well, let me tell you what's in there. And they tell you what's in there. We know you're not supposed to do that. That's uh, wrong when it comes to Christmas etiquette. But let's just imagine for one moment that someone who loved you, maybe your parent or your spouse or a really good friend, uh, decided they were going to tell you, beginning January 1st of 2013, they were going to tell you once a week for the rest of the, of the year leading up to Christmas one thing about the gift they got you. And one of the things they tell you at the beginning is that you literally cannot live without this gift. So every week, all year, they're telling you one new thing about this gift. Would you anticipate that gift? Would you be excited about that gift? You bet I would. I mean, I wouldn't be able, you got to tell me now. About halfway through it, I'd be saying that. You got to tell me. What is this gift that I can't live without? And you're telling me this stuff. Well, it sounds pretty good. Oh, that's, yeah, that sounds good. That sounds great. And, and throughout the year, the anticipation would grow and grow and grow. And in fact, one of the days, they told you seven things about this gift. Well, that would just make it worse. You just had to know what was this gift. And, and your, your heart would be yearning to know what this gift was. Well, imagine getting hundreds of descriptions of a promised gift for hundreds of years. And those promises being passed down from generation to generation and more promises added to the promises before. Can you imagine the anticipation in the hearts of people that had had this happen in their nation? Well, that's exactly what happened with the nation of Israel. As at the beginning with Genesis 3.15, all the way through to the end of Malachi, or Malachi, that's the Italian prophet in our Bibles, okay? And all the way through, there's prophecies about the promises about this unbelievable gift, this Christ who would come. And, and all of a sudden, it, it, just, it starts with Genesis 3.15, and it gets bigger and bigger and more wonderful and more wonderful and more wonderful and more wonderful. And they had heard this and they were greatly anticipating this gift. And they couldn't live without this gift. No one can live without this gift. Then God continued to add and add and add and add. We know that all of God's promises were fulfilled in Christ. There are not enough words to describe the fact that God sent his son Jesus, who lived and died and was buried and rose again for people from every tribe, tongue, and nation, as we learn in Revelation chapter 5. It's not enough words to describe that. And in fact, Paul, in thinking about Jesus and in thinking about him as this gift, look what he says in 2 Corinthians 9.15. Thanks be to God for his, what does he call it? Indescribable gift. And yet Paul and, and the New Testament writers try to describe it. Over and over again you read Matthew through Revelation and there's the descriptions and trying to explain, explain who Jesus was. And yet, so in some ways he is indescribable. But he's not unknowable. 
So we can see descriptions of him and see some part of who he is. And the more we look into God's indescribable gift, the more amazed and exciting we get. It heightens our anticipation and our appreciation of God's gift to us. So before we look at verses, nine, uh, verses 1 through 7 of chapter 9, I mentioned this earlier before I prayed. I just want to remind us of the original recipients and the place they find themselves in. Um, if, I was, I would, if I was preaching this as a series, I would drop back in halfway through chapter 8 and preach it. Now that would probably make it a two-month series then if I did that, but we're not going to do that this morning. But just remind you of where they are. They're, they're in bad shape. They are caught up in materialism and superstition. They're, they're leader, there's a major leadership crisis in the nation of Israel. They're caught up in sensu- sensuality. Does this sound unfamiliar? Yeah, it's like even our world today. They're on the heels of war and they're headed for more. There's despair and darkness. It's as black as it could possibly be in this time in the nation of Israel. Now we know that oftentimes in the darkest times is when God shows up. And all it does is heighten how bright and amazing and gracious he is. And that's exactly what happens here in chapter 9. These people needed hope. They needed deliverance. They needed something or someone that would lift them out of this despair. And this is exactly what God does through Isaiah to them. So let's look at these verses, specifically verses 6 and 7. And we're going to discover seven characteristics used to describe God's indescribable gift. That sounds funny, doesn't it? But God through Isaiah, is describing some aspects about this indescribable gift, this Savior to come that began in describing in Genesis 3.15. And my prayer is, is that if we see this, our love, our admiration, our adoration for the Lord Jesus Christ would only heighten during this Christmas season. That we would cherish the greatest treasure ever given the world. Well, let's look at, look at the first characteristic of God's indescribable gift, and, and I want you to look in verse 6 with me, and this uh, second phrase is, son will be given to us. God's indescribable gift is just that, a gift. That's the first characteristic. He is a gift. Now, that sounds redundant, but it needs to be. The recipients of Isaiah's prophecy had consistently rejected God's way of grace through faith. And I'm telling you, it's always been God's way is through grace through faith. There's never been any other way to be made right with God. From the very beginning, it's by grace through faith. We, we, some people look at the law and they say, well, if they kept the law, they couldn't keep the law. That was the purpose of the law, as we, we, we learned from Romans 3.20 and Romans 5.20 and Galatians 3.24. The purpose of the law is showing their sin and need for a Savior. They would cry, I can't. And they would place their faith in the Christ who was promised. It's always been by grace through faith. And they had rejected that. And they were going to pull themselves, they were good Americans, they were going to pull themselves up by their bootstraps, right? And they were just going to work harder than everybody else. And it was an affront to God. But that's where they're at. They rebelled, many of them. Others, again, tried to earn God's favor through keeping the law, which they couldn't. They need to be reminded here that God's gift was exactly that. A gift he was not earned. He was not deserved. God's way is by grace. There's no other way but by his grace. 
And this should have brought great humility to these people they're hearing this prophecy as they consider the fact that God gave them a deliverer in spite of their sin. I mean, they're at the worst part of their history. And God says, I'm going to give you something. And a gift is a gift. Well, we too need to be reminded that God's indescribable gift is just that. It's a gift, right? We don't, need, we don't earn it. We don't deserve it. We're reminded of this in John 3, 16. For God so loved the world. What's it say there? That he what? He gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. He gave. He gave. And the word there for gave is the word charis, which is the same word we have for grace. He graced us in his son. He gave it. When you think about giving this Christmas, marvel at the amazing truth that God gave. His gift was just that. A gift. Let's now consider the second characteristic of God's indescribable gift. Secondly, we see this in verse 6 in the phrase, for a child, this is the beginning of verse 6, will be born to us. The second characteristic then is he is a child. He is a gift and he is a child. First notice the word for. It says for, all right, and it points to the deliverer who would conquer their enemies finally and forever in verses 1 through 5. And that's what verses 1 through 5 is all about, this hope. That there will be a one who will come and conquer your enemies. Not only just physical enemies, but greater, the greatest enemy, which was sin. Notice what he says of this, my deliverer. He would be a child, literally a baby boy. And in fact, the grammar here of this baby boy, this deliverer, not a mighty army of angels, not a mighty army that would come out of the west or the east or the north or the south and, and conquer their enemies, but a baby boy. It reminds us of something earlier Isaiah prophesied in Isaiah 7, 14. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. We dealt with this text this week in Russia because we were talking about Christology, the study of Christ. And we looked at this passage. And many people say, well, the word virgin there can, can also mean a young girl. Well, it can also mean a young girl, but it can also mean a virgin, one who had never had relations with a man. And the context clearly points to its one who had never had a relation with man. Think about this. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. What kind of sign is a woman who had a relation with a man who has a baby? It's not a sign. Everybody else does it like that. Just think about that. And then you go to the New Testament, it's clear. She, was with, she had never had a relation with a man. But even here, you see the context. But, but this baby boy, born of a virgin, is amazing. And, and it points back this fact that he would be a boy really points back to verse 4 in our text. Look at verse 4 in our text here, but we have it, we're going to cover briefly. For you shall break the yoke of their burden and on the, on the staff on their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor, as at the battle of Midian. What in the world does that mean? That's exactly what you should ask. Are you asking that? What's that mean? God, I'm glad you asked, so I'm going to tell you. Here's what it means. All right, it's speaking, it's pointing back to the time of the judges in verses judge, uh, ch chapter 6 and 7 of the time of the judges. And during the time of the judges, the, uh, the Midianites at this particular time were oppressing the people or actually were sent by God. What happened is this was before the time of the kings. People had turned away from God. We, God, we got it handled. We, 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 we're we're going to do it our own way. And they began to walk away from the Lord. So the Lord would send an, a, a nation to bring discipline and judgment on his people. And what would happen, all, it's, this, is, this is Judges. You want to explain Judges. Sin, repentance, deliverer. 
Guess what happened after that? Sin, repentance, deliverer. And that's just a cycle. So at one point here in, in, in Judges, they've got, they walk away from God again, so he sends the Midianites against them. And they cry out, Lord, please, not the Midianites. We're so sorry. Please don't do this. So he sends a judge called Gideon. Now, Gideon is called, and he's called to fight an army of 135,000 Midianites. Okay, 135,000. Well, that's not a big deal until you know that God gave him 32,000 men to go up 135,000. That's pretty bad odds, isn't it? Okay, then God whittles them down to 10,000 because Gideon says, any chickens here? 22,000 hit the door. Now it's 135,000 against 10,000. God says it's still too many. And he whittles them down another 9,700 people to 300 men who are going to go into battle against 135,000 men from the Midianites. And the worst part of that is he sends them with trumpets and pitchers and torches to fight them. Are you going to battle with 300 against 135 with kazoo and a flashlight and a mason jar? No way. And that's exactly what I asked him to do. And guess what? God delivers the nation of Israel in a mighty way, a way that can only be explained by God. And that's the point here that Isaiah is making. A child, a child, a baby boy will be deliverer? That can only be explained by God. A baby boy is going to go against the greatest enemies of the world and the greatest enemy of the world, which is Satan and sin. That's his point. It can only be described by, by God. It's, it, he's the ultimate deliverer, this baby boy. And if you've received God's indescribable gift, his son, this baby boy, he will do things in and through you that can only be explained by God. How does someone in Russia who is a Christian who wants to plant a church and buy a piece of land do that in a matter of a few months? If you lived in Russia, you'd say it can't happen. It happened. And now that church is planting another church. I want to be explained by God. Are you willing to trust him in the midst of your struggles, your pain, your victory, and see him do things in and through you can only be explained by God? The fact that my wife loves me, that can only be explained by God. All right? Amazing. And you laugh. And the fact that we, what you, your wife loves you can only be explained by God too, guys. And ladies, don't you're not off the hook. All right? You're a little bit better. But... Just think about all that can only be explained by God, if we're being honest. And he wants to do more through us as we trust him in his indescribable gift. Well, let's now discover the third characteristic of God's indescribable gift. You find this also in verse 6 in the phrase, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor. The third characteristic, he is a wonderful counselor. A wonderful counselor. Well, what's this mean? Well, we need to understand what the word wonder would mean to the original recipients of this prophecy. What would that word mean to them? Well, in Psalm 78, 11, look what we said. They forgot his deeds and his miracles or wonders that he had shown them. This word was used to describe things only God could do. You didn't use this word wonder here for anybody else but God. Now consider how the word counsel or counselor is used to describe in the very context of Isaiah. This also comes from the Lord of hosts who has made his counsel wonderful and his wisdom great. And then again, in speaking of the deliverer, the Messiah in Isaiah 11, 
2. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel, counsel and strength, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Therefore, the words wonderful counsel are a reference to the fact that God's indescribable gift, listen to this, is deliverer will not only be a gift, he will not only be a child, but he will be God. You see that? Wonderful counselor. These are words only used to describe God in the Old Testament. Only. And they would understand this. He'll be a gift. He'll be a child. He'll be God. You already see the, the, the incarnation that he'll be perfectly God and man. Right here in this passage. That's not something they made up in the New Testament. It's even here in this passage. And the fact that the God, the indescribable gift is God means that he is a source of all wisdom and all knowledge, which makes him the wonderful counselor. This very thing is mentioned of Christ in Colossians 2, 2 and 3. Christ himself in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Since God's indescribable gift is the wonderful counselor, we have no reason to seek counsel from any place else. Why would we? He's the wonderful counselor who has all wisdom, all knowledge, if someone has all wisdom, all knowledge, why would you go to anybody else? And yet often we do, don't we? We look to other things for counsel. And I can promise you, if they don't ultimately point you back to the wonderful counselor, they're not, it's not good counsel. Yes, we're encourages, the word encourages us to seek counsel from others, and we see this in Proverbs 24, 6. And in abundance of counselors, there is victory. But this does not mean just any counselors, but those who will point you back to the wonderful counselor and his true and all-sufficient word, the Bible. So let me ask you a question. Whose responsibility is it to counsel at Grace Bible Church? Who's responsible to counsel at Grace Bible Church? Well, you, right? You're the pastor, right? We got a few other people trained, and they're trained in uh, biblical counseling, got a certificate, and went through all this training. It's them, right? Brandon and Jennifer and Tyler and some other people went to the conference. Maybe we should go to them. Just those people are supposed to counsel in this church. If you believe that, you believe the lie of this world has crept into the church. That's not the truth. Because often in the New Testament, in Romans and in Colossians, it tells us to counsel one another. It uses the word nutheteo. It means to place in truth into the heart of people so they can change. And it calls us to do that to one another. So who's supposed to counsel in this church? All of us. All of us are called to counsel each other. To point us back to the wonderful counselor who can change us. I'm telling you, look nowhere else but in the wonderful counselor who gives us each other to point us back to him. So you're all counselors. Welcome to the counseling ministry of Grace Bible Church. And if you're part of this church, you'll be a part of that. And we need to do that, right? Is to counsel each other and point us to the wonderful counselor where we'll find deliverance. Well, let's now look at the fourth characteristic of God in... in uh, this passage, this indescribable gift. He, um, he is the mighty God. The mighty God, it says in verse 6. Uh, to what is this referring? Well, again, we have to think, who were the, what were the original recipients thought of when he wrote mighty God? Well, thankfully, in Isaiah chapter 1, he wrote this, Therefore the Lord God of hosts, the mighty one of Israel, declares, Oh, I will, oh, I will be relieved of my adversaries and avenge myself of my foes. And then again in Isaiah 10.21, a remnant will return, the remnant of Jacob, to the mighty God. The words mighty God are again a reference to the fact that this indescribable gift, the baby boy deliverer, would be God, and he will therefore have the power to deliver. You can say someone's got power. Now, 
I love, I like England. I like the heritage we get from England and all those kind of things. And, but the Queen of England has no power. Not at all. She's got a title but no power. But not God's indescribable gift. He's got the title and he's got the power. He's the mighty God. If Jesus is not God, then he does not have the power to forgive sin. And we know that because the scripture teaches that only God can forgive sin. In fact, Jesus, when he's dealing with uh, some Jewish le- religious leaders and he's getting ready to heal this uh, paralytic all right, in front of them, notice what they say in Mark 2. Why does this man speak that way? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? He says he can forgive sins. So which is easier to say I can forgive sins or heal someone? It's, a lot, it's really easy to forgive sins. So you're going to have to prove it. So what's he do? He heals them to show I have the power to not only heal this man, but I have the power to forgive sins. He's the mighty God. And he has the power to forgive your sin as well. Aren't you glad that Jesus is the mighty God? And not some man? You know why? What? I am glad of that. For my sin is mighty. But not as mighty as him. And he conquered sin and death for us. Let's now look at the fifth characteristic here of God's indescribable gift. We find in verse 6 as well. It says, he's eternal father. So he is the eternal father. What does this mean? This is speaking of a ruler who has a parental or fatherly love for his people or his children. Eternal father. Jesus speaks of this kind of love when he laments over Jerusalem in Matthew chapter 23 of the people who rejected him. Look what he says. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who sent to her. How often I want to gather you, your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings and you were unwilling. That is a sign of intimacy, of love, eternal love. Not only does eternal father speak of parental love, the word father, uh, uh, with the word father, but it's eternal as well. It's never ending. He's not an Indian giver when it comes to his love. He gives and gives and gives and gives. It's eternal. We know that from Romans 8, where it says, nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Is that good news? That's good news. Pete, I'm glad you're here this morning, brother. Amen. That's right. That's great news. His love is eternal. And what great, great news for these people, this nation of Israel, who had not known loving fathers or loving leaders. They needed to know that this mighty God was loving Father who is eternal. And what great encouragement to us this morning. The fact that God's indescribable gift is eternal Father whose love is precious and protective and powerful and can carry us through the darkest times. When we're loved by him, we need no other love. Now let's look again now at the passage in six characteristics of God's indescribable gift. It says he's the prince of peace. Now had Israel known much peace in their history? Just what you know about Israel. If you've studied much of the Bible, and if you haven't, I'll just tell you, there's not much peace in the nation of Israel. You go through all the kings, go read in the first, second kings, first, second chronicles, and about all the kings from the northern and southern tri- kingdom and all that kind of stuff. There's not many good ones. And there wasn't much peace that was going on in the nation of Israel, internally and outwardly. Yet here is a promise 
of a prince of peace, a leader who would bring peace. Yes, the Messiah will one day bring physical peace on earth. That will happen because he is coming again. But these people in Isaiah's day needed to know a far deeper peace, one that was internal. They were at war with God through the rebellion. They weren't at peace with God. They weren't at peace with their neighbors either, but more important, they weren't at peace with God. They needed peace with God. So here was their hope of all the years, was met in him. You know the song? Was met in thee tonight. Their hope was met for peace in Jesus. And when he came the first time, that's exactly what he did. Listen to the message of the angel's announcement in Luke 2. Glory to God in the highest and on earth, what? Peace among men with whom he is pleased. Peace. He brought peace. He eventually brought this peace by turning away God's wrath from those who deserved it on his own son. The word we have in, in the Bible called propitiation to turn away God's just wrath from his son and, and from us and he turned it on his son so that we might have peace. And Romans 5.10 teaches that we were enemies of God. But look what it says in Romans 5.1. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we are at peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. His enemies who knew no peace can become his children who know peace. K-N-O-W. Because they know the Prince of Peace. And my prayer is you know peace this morning. Not necessarily peace on the outside, but peace on the inside. Often I'll talk to people and I ask them if they know the Lord and, and, and if they trust the Lord. Well, yeah, I trust him. I you know, pray every time I go to Houston. And I'd pray too. All right? And I pray when I do this. And I pray when I do this. And their trust and their peace comes from this, this prayer. And it's not that we shouldn't do that. But their greatest problem is not the external. Their greatest problem is the internal. Their greatest problem is their sin. And they need to have the peace of God and the peace with God internally. And so do all of us. Well, we've seen now this God's indescribable gift is a gift. He's a child. He's a wonderful counselor, mighty God, eternal father, prince of peace. Let's look at the seventh characteristic of indescribable gift in our passage this morning. I'll just tell you, just to sum it up, it, he is the king. He is the king. Now, some of you all remember if you grew up in an area where had Southern Gospel, Charlie will know this song. The king is coming. I've heard the trumpet sounding. It's a great song about the king is coming. Jared, you probably know that one, don't you? I know your background too, brother. The, the joyful, the, 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 the kingsman probably saying that, the kingsman quartet and all these other people. The king is coming. He is a king. Look at verse 7, what it says. There will be no end at the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish and uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. Not only will he have the power to accomplish as the mighty God, but he will also have the position. And you've got to have both for it to work. He's got both. He will reign forever. Listen to the words the angel spoke to Mary about the king. Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And his kingdom will have no end. He's the king. He came once before and offered his kingdom, but it was rejected. He will come again, but not to offer his kingdom. He's going to bring his kingdom. And only those who are in his kingdom will be a part of his kingdom. He's the king of kings, the Lord of lords, and he will reign forever and ever. So who's a part of his kingdom? Look at, back at verse 6. 
is for for a child will be born to us a son will be given to us who is the to us is it to everyone well yes and no here's what I want to say say if we read the whole context we see earlier he's writing this to the Jewish nation and so first it is to them but if you look in verses 1 you see the Gentiles in there too and when Jesus comes on the scene this verse is quoted about Jesus that it is for everyone whether you're Jew or Gentile slave or free it's for everyone for everyone who will quit trusting themselves for their salvation and turn and trust in Jesus the indescribable gift of God alone for their salvation that's who it's for he will be your king and believe me you want him to be your king well how in the world can we be sure that this is going to come about well you could go to a lot of different things look at all the prophecies that have been fulfilled in Jesus all 127 but just want to look what it says in the text look at the end of verse 7 the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this the Lord himself guarantees it and he's the only one that can swear because he can swear by himself and it will always come true wow wow God's indescribable gift is truly amazing have you, have you received his indescribable gift the one thing about a gift is you got to have a recipient right so if I want to give a gift to somebody this is an amazing gift this is my calf skin leather bible alright my preaching Bible, I love This is a great Bible. It's soft. You just want to preach because it's so soft, all right? More than that, it's good. And if I want to give a gift, Jared thinks I want to give it to him. I'm not. If I want to give a gift to Sarah. What has to happen for this gift to take place? I like it. Right there, see that? Yeah. You have to receive the gift. And if you want him to be your indescribable gift, the greatest gift you've ever had, you have to receive it. And the way he says you get yourself ready to receive it, is to turn from trusting in your sin and the deceitfulness of sin. Turn from trusting yourself and try to earn his favor and leave it all behind. And then turn, just like Sarah did, and just get in this position right here and receive his gift of his son. Then you'll know peace. Then you'll know victory. Then you'll know the gift of God. And my prayer is that will happen. My prayer is for those of who have already received the gift of God is this. Here's a great way to apply this. Ask someone during the next few weeks, what's the greatest gift you ever were given at Christmas? And let them describe that gift, whatever it might have been. Someone will go back to their childhood. I think about this bicycle my uncle got me. It's a great gift. I, this blue Ross Grand Tour bicycle with a gold chain. It's a great gift. I still remember it. And then after they tell you, and you listen intently, Say, hey, can I tell you about the greatest gift I've ever received? And tell them about this gift so they can too have the greatest gift ever given. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the indescribable gift. And Lord, we, even as Paul called it indescribable gift, we can never describe it completely, but we can describe it to such a way that it's the most wonderful thing we've ever heard of, we've ever received, we've ever experienced. And Lord, for that we thank you. And Lord, I pray for those here this morning who have never received your indescribable gift or that they would put themselves in the position to receive it. They would turn from trusting in themselves and turn from following after the deceitfulness of sin and turn to you, the God who gives. 
the indescribable gift, Jesus. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.